Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the RSA. My name is Rowan Conway. I'm Director of Innovation and Development here at the RSA, and I'm delighted to welcome you here today for today's lunchtime talk. Before we begin, can I ask you to turn your mobiles onto silent? Um, although we are filming today and live streaming over the web, so a very big welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Um, and a reminder that you can stay on the debate live too on your phone, as long as it's on silent, um, with the hashtag RSA Anthropology. Now, it's my very great pleasure to um, introduce today's guest speaker, Matthew Engelke. Matthew is a professor of anthropology at the LSE. He's a prize-winning author and teacher and former editor of the Journal of Royal Anthropological Institute. His much-praised new book, um, Think Like an Anthropologist, um, opens up fresh insights into contemporary social and political debates from big tech all the way through to Brexit. He argues that anthropology should be seen as central to our understanding of today's world as much as economics and psychology defines how we understand it. And we are unable to understand identity, cultural values and power without an anthropological lens. Much of the work of the RSA touches on some of these biggest, biggest issues facing modern society. So I'm fascinated to hear about the work that Matthew is doing, looking at the ways that we develop cultural values um, as we think about how we look at um, new technologies and ethics, how we think about the future of work, and how we think about the economic rules of our society. So Matthew has very unique take on how we can think differently about the values we hold. He tells me that he actually has been to the RSA before and conducted anthropology here. So you may be being observed as well as observing our speaker. Um, but please do join me in welcoming Matthew Ungelke. Thank you very much, Rowan. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I have indeed been here uh, conducting anthropological research before, not on RSA staff, but on uh, visitors who have been using their premises. But uh, that's for another day. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for coming. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful. As, as a writer, uh, writing is a very lonely business. And I think writing as an anthropologist is a very lonely business. <laughs> Uh, so to have this opportunity to speak to you all is, 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 is uh, I'm, I'm really grateful. So uh, my new book is an introduction to anthropology of sorts, uh, more specifically social and cultural anthropology. So these are the specializations that focus on social and cultural life in the here and now, often with a particular emphasis on the everyday. Traditionally, anthropology has been understood to focus on non-Western cultures. But this has never only been the case. And indeed, today, you're as likely to find anthropologists researching in the city of London or on Wall Street as you are in a remote village in the rainforests of Brazil. This is also the branch of anthropology that places a premium on being there, on conducting fieldwork or ethnography, often over a considerable length of time. My first major research project was in Zimbabwe, for instance, and I spent a year and a half in the field over a six-year period. One of the first lessons to thinking like an anthropologist is appreciating not only the value of observing others, but also participating in their day-to-day -day lives. 
So this is an introduction to social anthropology, but I prefer to think of it as a map of the field dotted with several points of orientation. Each of these points of orientation is a term or concept that has been hotly debated within the discipline. But none of them are technical or terms of art. These are everyday words. But that's part of the point because, again, anthropology is driven above all by a concern with the everyday. And so the nine chapters of the book are organized around concepts we all rely upon to make sense of ourselves and the world around us. Now, culture is first on this list because I argue it is the most important. It's the umbrella under which all the others sit. And I'm willing to bet that if you've come to a talk about anthropology, this point chimes or at least piques interest. So why culture? Uh, why should you be interested in this word? Well, maybe uh, you're just generally curious about cultures. Maybe you have an interest in uh, Hindu puja, for example, or traditions of basket weaving among the Yakwana, who are a group uh, who live in the Amazon. Or maybe it's a more directed interest. Maybe you work for the home office and want to know more about kinship customs in southern Africa. Maybe you're an artist interested in how the Maori understand gift exchange. Maybe you're a banker and have always been struck by the differences between the London and Hong Kong offices. Maybe you're a social researcher working on the prevention and reporting of domestic violence, but keep coming up against the limits of statistics or other disembodied numbers. Maybe you're of two minds about development. Maybe even you volunteered in Sierra Leone during the recent Ebola crisis and came to appreciate how important it is to understand traditional burial practices in such an event. Maybe on top of any of these, you're trying to make sense of the issues that seem to grip us in the press, such as Brexit or the rise of Donald Trump. Thinking like an anthropologist can be of great use to all of these wonderings. And thinking like an anthropologist has to involve a consideration of culture. So why is culture so important? Because culture provides the lenses through which we see the world. Culture is the index of our ideas, our values, and our modes of reasoning. Culture wears the garb of common sense. Let me illustrate the power of culture by giving you an example from my own research. In some ways, it's a lighthearted example, but it points to some significant considerations. Right? Very lighthearted. Um, so when I first went to Zimbabwe in 1993, I was an exchange student. I was an undergraduate still, but I was studying anthropology, and I was doing a, an undergraduate project. Uh, and as part of this exchange program, I was coming from the United States. I spent time in the rural areas of Zimbabwe, and I lived with a family, stayed with a family in an area called Chueshe, uh, a beautiful area out in the country in Zimbabwe. And I had a, a host brother who I spent a lot of time with. It happened to be a time of the year when there wasn't a lot going on in terms of the fields and farming, so we had a lot of time to just hang out. And we would sit on the rocks above his homestead watching the baboons uh, play on, on adjacent rocks and generally just trying to talk to each other through his broken English and my very broken Shona. 
And one day when we were sitting there talking, he said to me, hey, Mateo, uh, do you like cricket? Just like that. And here I was, uh, uh, an American uh, studying um, a former British colony where I knew cricket was a very popular, important sport. I had absolutely no idea. I still don't. I've lived in this country for 16 years. I don't know what you do. It makes baseball look exciting. Um, uh, but I did, I, I responded in the way that we often do in these kind of cross-cultural uh, exchanges, which is a, a polite kind of, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. So he said, right, and he hopped up, let's go. So we went back down to his homestead, uh, and he uh, went into the um, kitchen hut where his uh, mother and grandmother did the cooking. And of course, as, a, as an American, that made sense because I thought he was going to get the cricket bat, which you know Americans tend to keep their sports equipment kind of in the back of the house near the kitchen. It, nothing really struck me as, as, as untoward until he came out of the uh, kitchen hut, not with a cricket bat or a white sweater, uh, <clears throat> but in fact a small bowl that contained a cricket which had been uh, <laughs> fried in oil <laughs> and prepared for me. And, I was sitting here thinking, oh God, what am I going to do? Hospitality is, of course, very important across cultures. And I knew that I was going to have to eat this thing, right? So I pick up the cricket. And I'm telling myself, I was still an undergraduate, but I'd taken many anthropology courses. And I was telling myself, you know that food is a cultural construction. You know that this is edible. Just eat it. And I popped it in my mouth crunched down, and it was absolutely disgusting. <laughs> and I swallowed it down, uh, much to the amusement of, of, uh, of my friend and now other people who were watching. And within a matter of seconds, threw it back up. Right? So, uh, and they, they loved that. Right? Uh, that this, is, this is culture. Right. This, this, this is the best definition of culture I can think of, throwing up a cricket. Right? So, so what does this tell us? Right? It tells us how powerful common sense assumptions are. Right? We tend to think that other people think like us, especially when it comes to the basics, or even more dangerously that they should. So culture, then, is what prevents some people from thinking that crickets should ever be classed as food. Culture is what fills our head in the process of thinking in a particular way. Here, for example, with the cricket story, considering the details of colonial history, and even more specifically, British colonial history. I was very proud of my historical knowledge of empire and knowing that if I had been in a French or Portuguese post-colony, they would never have asked me about cricket because these nations don't play cricket, right? So I was, I was factoring in what I thought was relevant historical knowledge, right? But culture is not just mental. It is material. It is a thing in itself, or if not a single thing, a range of things. Houses, kilns, paintings, books of poetry, flags, tortillas, English breakfast tea, samurai, store, samurai swords, cricket bats, and yes, even crickets. So there is a materiality to culture. It is embodied and enacted. I ate a cricket, and I got sick. In other words, my body had a physiological, we would say natural reaction 
to a cultural construct. And to me, that shows just how profoundly culture shapes us, right? such that we can have physiological, natural reactions. Right? Because in my culture, still, we don't eat crickets. Right? Now, there are a few important points to keep in mind with all of this. I'll take our friend off the screen. Uh, some constructive, some critical. Let me begin with one of the constructive points, because over the past 150 years, what anthropologists researching across the world have shown is just how central culture is to our makeup, how time and again nurture betters nature. Now, I illustrate this in the book through numerous examples. In the chapter on blood, for instance, I relate how the Inupik in Alaska operate with a very fluid sense of kinship connection, one in which blood or genetic relationship is secondary. Among the Inupik, it is perfectly possible to hear someone say, he used to be my cousin. Relatedness is defined by the quality of relations, not some natural substrate. And this case is far from unique. Indeed, there is even anthropological research from Madagascar, for example, which combines classic fieldwork with experiments in comparative psychology to show that among the Vezo, a fishing people who live along the coast, the facts of biological relation are known but intentionally downplayed in order to emphasize the cultural value of kinship over and above a flesh and blood connection. So this is a crucial resource of the anthropological record. Wherever we find arguments that it's in our blood or that's just how men and women are or what have you, the anthropological evidence should be brought to bear. Now, uh, one of my favorite anthropologists, Ruth Benedict, put this uh, beautifully, I think, in as long ago as 1934 in a book that I think is still absolutely uh, uh, exciting and essential. Right? So what Benedict says here is emphasizing the incredible importance of cultural processes over and above biologically transmitted behavior. Right? So... Let me turn now to a few of the limits, however, right? and there are ones that are important to acknowledge. Right? The first is that when we think in terms of culture, we have to be mindful of the fact that culture and place are not the same thing. Right? Let's take British culture. Right? We might well speak in terms of such a thing, but if someone were to ask you where is British culture, you'd have a hard time pointing to it or at least boxing it in. Culture, for one, does not stop at national borders. It often doesn't even conform to national borders in the first place. <laughs> Secondly, and sticking with the example of Britain, we'd have to ask British culture when. Right? Whatever this thing is, it is clearly not going to be the same in 1884, 1945, and 2017. So culture is not fixed in place, and it is not fixed in time. And finally, we might ask, British culture for whom? No two members of a society think exactly alike, and there is no black and white rule book. Right? Now, this has long been recognized by anthropologists as long ago as the 1920s and 30s. Here, uh, two of the great uh, founding figures, Bronislaw Malinowski, who taught uh, at, at the LSE, and Robert Lowy, who was a, 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 a it, coming out of the same school as Ruth Benedict in the United States, uh, give us a very good uh, sense of this. Right? 
So there are important limits. And no anthropologist will use these concepts without taking account and being mindful of these limits. Right? Unfortunately, I think that is not always the case within broader popular discourse. Right? The popular take-up of culture often airbrushes out these subtleties and details. Right? So let me um, illustrate this by uh, relating it over the course of a few examples to a, a very important uh, national issue and indeed international issue at the moment, uh, Brexit. Consider just one iconic representative of culture talk in the public square, Nigel Farage. Uh, in his case for Brexit, Farage often deployed an understanding of culture that cut straight against uh, Robert Lowy's point, uh, which I just highlighted. Right? This particular question, uh, do I think parts of Britain are a foreign land, which he posed at a UKIP conference, was followed by recounting a train journey out of Charing Cross on which he didn't start to hear English until after Grove Park. Now, the politics of language and the politics of culture are often closely linked, of course. Yet what we know from the anthropological record is that even among contemporary European nationalists, this link takes many forms. As one researcher has documented, which I discuss in the book's chapter here on identity, there has been a massive shift, for example, over the past 30 years in the way Catalan nationalism has figured the Catalan language. Whereas once to be Catalan was to be a native speaker, and this, of, co and this of course, is the subtext of Farage's question with respect to British and English, what this anthropologist shows, and she's been working in uh, Catalonia since the early 1980s, what she shows through a study of schooling is that the tight fit uh, between language and national identity uh, and the necessary link to an expression of culture has been loosened for teenagers today in Catalonia and even in some of the, uh, amongst some of the people that she first met in the 1980s, there is uh, not nearly as strong a sense of this connection. Right? So another way uh, in which to approach these uh, issues uh, with respect to, to Brexit concerns uh, the ways in which politicians and others have made arguments about uh, what it might mean to leave the European Union. Right? One of the most persistent arguments for Brexit has been based on the assumption and assertion that economic rationality will prevail, that the Germans would come to the table because they sell us a lot of BMWs. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say that right, over the past few years. Right? Now, in my view as an anthropologist, this is a very dangerous assumption. Right? We cannot deny the extent to which economic rationality has become synonymous with rationality itself. But we also cannot discount what anthropology teaches us, which is that time and again, people don't make such rational choices. And this covers, as I discuss at various points in the book, everything from a classic study of why peasant farmers in Lesotho didn't sell their cattle during the massive drought of 1983 to reflection on the fact that the average cost of a wedding in Britain stands roughly equal to average yearly earnings. Right? We are not, as one anthropologist puts it, homo economicus. Now my own interests in and commitment to anthropology rests on a combination of its values. On the one hand, Knowing more about how other people live 
whoever those others might be, how other people organize their lives and articulate their passions is good in itself. We need to know more about the Veizo, about the Inupic, about Catalans. Again, in the words of Ruth Benedict, there has never been a time when civilization stood more in need of individuals who are genuinely culture conscious, who can see objectively the socially conditioned behavior of other people without fear and recrimination. 1934, I would say this is just as relevant today. The flip side of this is that the more we learn about others, the more we learn about ourselves. Good anthropology should always involve an element of culture shock. It should always prompt us to question our own common sense assumptions, whether that has to do with the edibility of crickets or, for instance, the rationality of German auto executives. Making the familiar strange and the strange familiar, that's how to think like an anthropologist. Thank you very much. Well, you covered a lot of ground there in, in such a short time. Um, and I would say it's well worth looking at the book because it does cover all of, those, all of those things that fundamentally make up how we understand ourselves and society. So where to start? Um, I think to reflect a little bit on the culture um, and the culture talk that you, you spoke of earlier and, and how culture infuses our public discourse. I'm really interested in us getting a little bit more under the skin of popular, popular discourse, because increasingly you see these disparities between what is said will happen and then what then ends up happening, and then the kind of um, how the homo economicus, as you put it, is, is disrupted by the non-homo economicus. Um, so let's think about this oversimplification of the important things into, you know, it's the economy, stupid, mm -hmm. get on with it, um, when actually doesn't reflect our wider cultural discourse at all. In your role as an anthropologist, you know, how might an anthropologist seek to broaden the discourse beyond economic rationality? What kind of anthropological ed evidence or tools would you use to try and illustrate beyond that narrow oversimplification yeah. and into that broader yeah. understanding? Yeah, sure. Well, I think um, the, the evidence that, that anthropologists would want to use is, again, that kind of 150-year record of, of ethnographies, of, of books and articles, monographs that document the ways in which people in everyday life actually negotiate situations, uh, uh, negotiate uh, their values and, and commitments, right? And um, in terms of the, the, the emphasis on economic rationality, um, what I would say is that within, within the West, within the, the contemporary West, and indeed in some respects more broadly, economic rationality has become a kind of core, core value or core lens through which we see the world or which we tell ourselves we ought to see the world, right? So the monetization of everything, right? Now, of course, there's a lot of conflict here and um, a lot of pushback. We see that, and this is why um, the Beatles and other uh, uh, musicians um, are so popular because they you know, write songs, can't buy me love, right? I mean, there's always going to be a kind of counter narrative to this. But nevertheless, the dominant image and the dominant way in which we tend to tell ourselves we think is through 
economic rationality, right? Um, and, and this has very real effects. So let me give you the example. It might seem like a faraway place and a faraway time, but that example of, uh, of the drought in Lesotho in 1983, right? Um, development economists and government officials in Lesotho were telling the peasant farmers, sell your cattle, right? They're going to die, right? If you don't get some money for them now, you're going to come up empty. And in fact, what we saw in Lesotho in 1983 is a drop in the sale of cattle, right? Why? Well, because cattle have an incredible cultural importance to the local people, right? So this is something that I, uh, you know, I document in, in the book or go over an in, in example in the book. So it, it, cattle are important to, to men. They're important to households. They're important to the ways in which a household uh, positions itself within the wider community in terms of patron-client relations. None of this was recognized that cattle hold some kind of cultural purchase which couldn't be bought or sold, right? So I think in that very simple example, right, um, we, we have a lesson for ourselves in terms of how we approach uh, the, the concerns and crises within, within our own lives, right? Um, try to get to an understanding of the, the, not, not what popular discourse or, or the popular lens of thinking would have us uh, 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 you know, conclude, but in fact looking at the, the kinds of cultural values that people actually hold up and use to negotiate and make decisions. Absolutely, and, and the, the values based under, under, underpinning core decisions and policy decisions is an interesting one there too. I'm, I'm minded of we've just launched a, a food and farming commission here at the RSA and I did some research into farming a number of years ago where the identity of being a farmer mm. far outweighed the ability for your farm to actually pay your way. So there were lots of people in, in poverty, but seeing themselves as a, as a farmer first was the, I, those, those identities mm -hmm. went entirely against policymakers' <coughs> understanding of maybe you need to get out of this, this organisation. Yes, yeah. um, but, you know, these, these, play, these issues that you raise play very um, close to our hearts at the, at the RSA because we do regularly explore ethics and values and cultures and, and how we might change decision-making towards the progressive futures. Um, and in your book, you explore values in, in a lot of depth and how they're formed, um, particularly noting that sort of social and cultural conditions, as you described there in Lesotho, um, nurture our values. Can you talk some more about... The, the development of values mm. and how they shape cultural norms and priorities and how maybe we shift values mm -hmm. and are able to shift values. Yeah, well, my, my favorite example of, of a shift in values, and it's also one I talk about in the book, um, although I can't claim to have done anthropological research on it, is, is Downton Abbey, right? I'm, I'm sure some of you have watched Downton Abbey. Um, it, it, it's, in, it's an incredibly good show with respect to highlighting a shift of paramount values within uh, uh, British society, right? What you have is an aristocrat who, for whom the paramount value of holism is what matters, right? Uh, Lord Grantham uh, often speaks on the show about the fact that Downton Abbey is not his, he's simply the steward for the next generation. Uh, you've got the, the, the <coughs> butler who, who sees the ways in which every member of the household has a place, Right, within a larger system. It is a holistic system, which is hierarchical, right? but nevertheless, at least in Julian Fellow's telling of, you know, I love how 
the, the, the staff, they have these huge loaves of bread and cheese, and they get access to the family lawyer, and they all get cottages when they retire. It's this wonderful image of what a, a, a holistic yet hierarchical system can be like. And then you have other characters on the show who are championing the values that actually came to dominate, the values of individualism. Right? I don't fit into this narrative. I don't have a slot in this larger ecosystem. We need to change with modernity, with uh, the first, you know, with the First World War, with the, you know, the the, the symbolism behind the, the the magnificence of the Titanic and the sinking of the Titanic, right? Um, so even one of the, the daughters, you know, in the show is 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 gripped by this individualism, by being herself, right? Which we understand now in the modern world is absolutely crucial to who we are, being yourself, not occupying a social role. Um, so that's a, that's a, that show is a, is a really good kind of popular culture example of, of the, the slow unfolding of a transition in values from a hierarchical system which was entrenched to one in which modern discourses of, of individual identity and self-realization as, uh, as a discrete person become paramount, right? So, a, a slightly flippant example, but I think nevertheless a, a very good one. And it shows you on the show how that's connected to uh, kinship, to economics, to politics, to all areas of social life. Right? And, and building on that, I think that's, that's an interesting tale of a transition of eras, if you like. And, and you know, many would say we've, it feels like we're at, a, at a t an era in which we're, we're moving, transitioning away from a very modernist economy or very rational economy and more towards this networked digital era in mm -hmm. which digital globalized values dominate, mm -hmm. um, that macro we understand and have access to wide-ranging information from far beyond our locality mm -hmm. um, and so therefore are influenced by global values. Mm. I'm interested in, you know, as values shift, it, one, the question of what is the role of external forces, these mm -hmm. kind of the macro narratives, the things yeah. that are happening around us in the nurture, so mm -hmm. not just the nurture of the local or the family or the friends, but yeah. actually the wider discourse. And then really a, a bit of commentary on from an anthropological perspective how do you look at mm -hmm. digital communities how mm -hmm. do you understand the future and and where we're going to and what what that what the values that may emerge might look like mm -hmm. just a few yeah. tiny little questions a few tiny questions yeah um great questions um let me let me kind of break it into two the kind of globalization and then the digital um i mean they're obviously connected certainly in as much as kind of new media technologies are central to the dynamics of globalization. Um, anthropologists have been studying globalization for a long time, but of course, one of the points that anthropologists would want to make is that globalization is always local, right? I mean, globalization always happens in particular places. And, and let me give you a very good example. Again, it's 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 uh, one that I highlight in the book. Uh, an absolutely wonderful uh, anthropologist, Yun Shen Yang, who uh, has been working in the same village in uh, in China for 30 years. Uh, has documented the shift, and this ties back as well to values, uh, the, sh the shift among young women in terms of their taking up the value of individualism. Right? Now, this shift is partly because of the ways in which uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party has allowed a certain opening up of mass media channels such that images of individuals uh, and, and, and market economies have become... 
uh, central to, to Chinese life. So these young women are now trying to position themselves not under the, the, the kind of dictates of filial piety in the classic traditional model, but as feisty young women who have their own view on the world. And one of the things that has happened in this village is a shift in the way that bride price works, or bride wealth, right, as it would be known in anthropology, often known as um, bride price in, in, in popular discussions. But bride wealth is when one family gives uh, usually not money, and this is an important point, but certain kinds of valuable goods or symbolic goods to another uh, in order to cement uh, an exchange through, through a marriage, right? Um, traditionally, the bride wealth was passed between, between the, the parents, right? But these young women in China are now saying, no, that's going to me, right? I'm going to negotiate this bride wealth, right? And the question that this raises, okay, are they becoming, you know, just like modern capitalist Western individuals, right? And what Yan, Yun Chen Yan shows, in fact, is that while the, 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 while the discourse and while the, the, the value of individualism has been in many ways taken from popular culture and from the logic of market economies, it has been localized in very particular ways, right? So you do not necessarily see an undercutting of the importance of family, you just see a realignment of who is responsible for maintaining those links, right? So one of the points that anthropology would always want to make is that globalization always involves localization, right? We cannot talk about a value or even the, the importance uh, of, of a commodity, right? Like Coca-Cola or a phone and assume that they will be taken up in the same way in China and in Brazil and in uh, the United States, right? There is always going to be that history that shapes the ways in which it gets, it gets fit within to a larger system, right? Now, getting on to the point about uh, uh, how anthropologists can study uh, the digital, um, I happen to think it's really hard. <laughs> it's very hard as an anthropologist because I think anthropology has to involve, uh, even though I dis discounted it in my talk, I think it has to involve flesh and blood. Right? I think it has to involve an interaction with people on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, one of the issues with digitalization is the disembodiment of the ways in which we form relationships with one another. Right? Um, now, it can be done. There have been very interesting studies. Another one that I highlight in the book, uh, an anthropologist who did an ethnographic study of Second Life, which is an online virtual world. And one of the things that, that he showed in that study is, again, how we're starting to see a shift of values and how media technologies and, um, and, and, and the internet help facilitate that. So we're starting to see, and this ties into the Catalan case as well, we are, we are starting to change the ways in which we think about our identities as always necessarily fixed, that we're kind of born with them uh, or that we can't shift them, right? And Second Life is a very good example because what he ended up studying on Second Life is uh, men, you know, grown men in, in the offline world who uh, adopted the identity of uh, a liter literally adopted children online. Uh, someone became a chipmunk. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, yeah, I don't know how that happened, but anyway. Um, nevertheless, the, the, the point is if you go to the Second Life you know, website, what you'll see is people saying, 
I feel like you know, participating in the Second Life allowed me to be the real me, even if the real me was a chipmunk, right? Even if the real me was a 47-year-old man uh, uh, acting the role, performing the role, being a seven-year-old adopted child, right? So that kind of platform allows for shifts in the ways in which we understand our identifications. Um, in terms of how to study it as an anthropologist, it's, it's absolutely crucial to try to get beyond the media platform itself, to interact with the people in their day-to-day -day lives, right? Uh, and there has been some interesting work on this. Um, a colleague at UCL, uh, Danny Miller, has just done a huge uh, multinational project on um, social media, right? Looking at social media in, in Turkey, China, India, and a few other contexts. So it can be done, but it's very difficult because I think that anthropologists need to have proximity to, uh, to, to, to flesh and blood still. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to, we have a couple of um, microphones in the audience. I have a further question. We'll start with you, and then I'm looking for a, a lady to, to join the questions, and then I'll go to the next gentleman, the lady in the front. Uh, okay. Um, you mentioned earlier on one of the slides about how people, culture isn't, even within a particular group, isn't consistent and uniform, and each person is a sort of, basket of values uh, which are different to, to other people. But you also refer to, and, um, to both Brexit and the American um, uh, election where people like Cambridge Analytica now have the power through artificial intelligence to identify on an individual basis what those cultural triggers and susceptibilities might be. What danger do you see that? And, and also how can our, uh, anthropologists use that power to actually go right down to that micro level within a particular cultural group? Gosh, good question. Um, maybe, I don't know when Cambridge Analytica, I don't know much about Cambridge Analytica, and I don't know if they had this um, ability before the election in the United States or the referendum, but if they did, maybe it would have been helpful to, <laughs> to get more of the data. Um, I mean, how can anthropologists go down to that micro level or use kind of big data? Is that, is that the? Well, it's use big data, but also using artificial intelligence to interrogate it to a yeah. really yeah, yeah. Gosh, that's a very good question. I don't have a, a, a good answer to. What I would say is that I think what you will find is most anthropologists would want to resist the turn, as exciting as it may be and as valuable as it may be. Most anthropologists would want to resist the turn to relying on those kinds of uh, approaches because, again, I think what, what makes anthropology special and and what gives it its purchase is the kind of small-scale intimacy and connection that it allows for. Now, what you sacrifice, therefore, is a connection to a lot of people, right, uh, and to big data sets. But I think what you actually find, and this gets to maybe part of your point and, and one of the points that I think is important to underline, even though everyone within a, a a culture or society is going to approach things from uh, slightly different angles. There are patterns of culture, right? And that was, that's the title of Ruth Benedict's famous book from 1934. There are patterns of culture. And, and what anthropologists can do is, is um, try to identify the kind of paramount values that hold within that culture and extrapolate from those as to how people might react, right? 
Um, but again, the turn to, to, to AI, I'm not sure how that could be fitted into the anthropological project. Thank you for your talk. Is it possible at all to understand, uh, to, to make the other culture knowable to us? Or is it just um, a projection of mm. a romantic <clears throat> understanding? Mm. And then it comes to experience. Um, I don't know whether you mentioned experience. This might make us aware of our diversity. Yeah. For example, and I stop here. Mm. Um, I live in this country, I've been living in this country before you were born, mm. and I still don't understand the jokes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, well, I've been here six, 15 years uh, as an American, and I'm even, I have a PhD in anthropology, and I still can't, I don't understand um, <laughs> these people. Um, no, very, uh, 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 no, it, can you ever understand, well, I mean, uh, I mean, yes, yes, and no. I mean, one of the things about anthropology that I mentioned and that is crucial is that, and ties into your point about experience, it has to be long term, right? Uh, at least, you know, most anthropologists would say you need at least a year, at least a year, if not more, time with the people who you're trying to get to know, and and of course, within the within that period of time you start to uh, unconsciously and unknowingly um, uh, adapt the ways that you look at the world. And I can attest to this because now I'm a very, conf I mean, this is not a psychology session, but um, therapy session. I, I mean, I'm a deeply confused person because as it, when I go back to America, I think, oh my God, this place is weird, right? So I have, I have, clearly, been, I have clearly been enculturated in some way, and I'm sure you have as well. Maybe you don't get the joke still, but nevertheless, there are probably some things you you do which are have taken on the the you know the 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 texture of locality, right? And and, and that's really what anthropology is about. It's a very slow process. It's it, I have to say it's actually a, it's not a good way to sell the discipline, but it's very boring to do anthropological research, right? It you 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 it is about getting up in the morning and having breakfast with the people and going to the, to the fields or to the office or to the church or to the gambling shop or whatever you're studying and just going, you know, a lot of exciting things don't happen every day. And that's precisely the point. That's precisely the point that we cannot go in and conduct an interview or a survey and expect to get the sense of a people, right? So it's that long-term connection and of course, I spent a year and a half in, in Zimbabwe. Um, I haven't gone back to do more research because of the political issues there. Um, uh, but there are many anthropologists who have been studying in the same place, whether it be with the Yakwana in the rainforest of the Amazon or indeed um, you know, uh, communities in Sicily or you know, for 30 or 40 years. And so they have been part of that world for a long time, coming in and out. And of course, it's very important for an anthropologist always to maintain some distance. So when you said, is it ever possible for the anthropologist or us to know fully the other culture? I would say no, but that's a good thing. Because if, if you are ever simply giving 
the native's point of view, as it's often put in anthropology, then you're not being an anthropologist, right? You're not there to be entirely local. You, you should always maintain a bit of critical distance in order to, to add that, that analytical level, right? Which is not to say that natives, whoever they may be, can't reflect meaningfully on who they are, right? But anthropology is always premised on this careful dance between kind of intimacy and remove. There's a, a really interesting sort of parallel um, in what you were talking there about sort of trying to represent views and, and, and cultures or patterns of culture. Um, and I think there's a tension in some of the, we've observed a real increase in, um, in policy making to, to deal with the issues of economic rationality. We've seen policymakers really move towards human-centered design processes, thinking about behavioral insights, you know, trying to bring in ethnographies, maybe calling them rapid ethnographies, um, uh, and empathic connections to develop public services, especially you know, health and social care services. Um, but, but as I was listening to you speak, and specifically in, in that last context about how long it, it might take even a, a year to really get to under, under the skin of some, to really understand what is the user's perspective, um, how would you, you know, these processes are often quite rapid yeah. in that development. How, how does that reconcile with mm -hmm. an anthropologist's mm -hmm. view in terms of service design? Yeah. Well, I think uh, that's a very good question, and I appreciate that if, if one... It, if, if one is doing research for uh, uh, a government department or, or, or a think tank or um, you know, s uh, a social research firm, you don't necessarily have the luxury of that long period of time. Um, um, I, think you, I, think what, I think there needs to be a kind of negotiated middle ground. I think um, projects that do rely on this kind of approach need to there needs to be a certain patience, right? Um, because uh, you know the, the ways in which issues affect people. I mean, you know, we, if we take kind of um, household debt, for example, you know, it might be that at certain times of of the year, right, um, there, there are different pinch points. So there's an argument to be made about looking at several points within a given financial cycle, if you will, or calendrical cycle. Um, and going back because it's it's worth the it's worth the payoff, right? Um, but I think uh, the key for more ap applied work is is again trying to push for that uh, middle ground. And I know there are social research firms and think tanks that that try to do projects that last you know two or three months. Um, it's better than two or three days, right? Um, and you know I appreciate you you can do what. Do as much as you can, right? Um, but I think because I think one of the arguments that has to be made to the 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 people who hold the purse strings is the value of that small bit of extra patience. Yeah. I think we had a question here, and if we uh, any other questions, raise your hand, and I will come back to you. Thank you. Um, to me, you make a powerful case that governments ought to be thinking more like an anthropologist, or at least listening to anthropologists. But um, I wonder to what extent you've seen evidence of that. And in that context, I'm reminded of people making the case that governments ought to be having a historical board or an advisory board of historians to make sure yet another country doesn't go and invade Afghanistan without realizing two others have tried and failed. Are you seeing evidence that governments are taking this perspective into account? <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, it's a great, uh, great question. Um, uh, some are. Uh, there are some controversial ways in which it's being done. Um, so that is to say, within the community of anthropologists. Uh, within the United States, for example, there are anthropologists who work with um, the, the, the United States military, right? Uh, and say, look, you know, we're going to Afghanistan, we're going to Iraq, um, we need to understand local cultures, right? Uh, now, that particular approach has been very, very controversial within, within the anthropology community because that is not where many anthropologists want to see the emphasis going, right? Um, uh, th there are other there are other examples of peop of, of anthropologists who have um, who have been involved. I mean, I have a, a colleague at LSE, uh, David Graber, who has um, ha has done work that has been picked up in policy circles. They tend to be more of the um, Corbin end of the spectrum than the than uh, the Theresa May end of the spectrum. Um, but uh, he he has uh, participated in these kinds of discussions. Um, there, there are others. Um, even some politicians who have uh, Nick Clegg, poor guy. I mean, he has a degree in anthropology. I don't know what good it did him, but um, uh, 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 you know. And I also, do, I mean, I would love to ask him if he's a, how much he thinks like an anthropologist. Um, I, I, yes, I, I, I think there's a there is a reluctance though, and I think this is a shortcoming of the discipline as a whole. There is a there is a reluctance to engage. I think at the level of government. Definitely, there's a kind of standoffishness, um, or even within um, public debate. And part of it is that anthropologists in general are not very good at public debate because we tend to, you know, we don't get asked onto Newsnight because we we often say we often say things. Uh, we 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 take a typical academic line, which is scratch our head and say, you know, it's really complicated. Yeah. You could look at it this way, you could look at it that way, and that's not what. Newsnight wants, right? Much less a, 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 a you know, a, any other outlet. So um, there is a kind of, um, I think, inbuilt problem for the discipline. And I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book uh, is precisely to try to reach a broader audience. I knew that uh, Penguin and Pelican. Yeah, I mean, is you know, I thought I, I, I mean, if you had asked me. Three years ago, would you ever write an introduction to anthropology? I mean, I would have said you're crazy. You know, I've got better things to do. But writing a, a pelican is a very different proposition because it is a fantastic series uh, that has reached broader audiences, and um, it, that is why I wanted to to write it. Now, the book, if you end up buying it, you know, I don't. I, I, I mentioned. Donald Trump and you know Boris Johnson appears and you know here and there, but it's not. This is a this is a book that focuses on a lot of academic research, right? But I think that's absolutely crucial because I think one of the things we need to do is understand the the, the history and the current trajectory of anthropology, in order to understand how we might then apply it within the arenas of, of, of public policy, right? So it's not a kind of how-to manual to fix household debt or what have you, right? There's a lot of talk about, you know, Sharia law and, but not within the context of, you know, current political interest in that subject. But my point would be that if you want to talk about Sharia law within the context of policy to, to, to debates or 
public discussions, you first need to actually have a sense of what Sharia law is all about, right? There's a, there's a step process to making this information and this body of knowledge useful, right? And it begins with really trying to understand how people in particular places and coming from particular traditions understand the world from their point of view, right? Before we get to the policy level ways in which it might be discussed. Okay, I think we have one final question. It was interesting, you, you um, bringing up the issue of evidence-based. I think evidence-based policymaking has been this kind of overriding mantra. It's very hard to compartmentalize some mm. of the, the evidence that comes out of anthropology, but hopefully this takes us some way mm. towards understanding how we might apply it. Gentleman in the front. Thanks. I'm not quite... Is that working? Good. Um, what I was intending to say has very much been covered by the previous question, but I think I've got just a little bit more. Um, I was very struck by something you said quite early in your um, address, which was that from culture we can assume... Sorry, one of the things that might characterise culture is to lead us to assume that other people think like we do. And then when we realise that that's not the case, to think that they should... Uh, and I think it would be, uh, I wouldn't be controversial to say that that was one of the impacts and outcomes of the referendum result. Um, certainly the Remainers, of whom I was one, were totally shocked to discover that the generality of people didn't agree with me. Um, and I think the Leavers said, well, sod you, because one of the problems has been that you don't understand us. Um, the, the, the question that's in my mind, um, which, take, which goes from the word policy to politicians, is the marketability and utility of anthropology to politicians. I think, for example, you could say that the Ramonas still cling to the idea that this is all about a rational homo economicus debate. And yet all the polling suggests that that doesn't have any impact upon the leave population at all, really. So they were sold the idea of a broad, happy economic future, a global Britain. And they seem equally happy to look over the precipice towards economic decline and political and international decline. So if um, anthropology can take us to the point of helping people to recognize that actually not everybody does agree with us, does it also offer a way forward to then saying, what is it that leads other people not to agree with us? And where might we look for common ground? Because the process must be one of change, mustn't it? I mean, if I recognize now that people don't actually think like I do, that's useful, but it needs to take me somewhere, which is towards better understanding, I think, and not necessarily in order to try to persuade them to agree with me. So really, it's, it's that stage. Is, is, can it go from stage one to getting people to recognize that not everybody's the same to stage two, which is trying to achieve some sort of broader shared understanding as a community, whether it's local or beyond locality, cultural. Yeah. Is, I don't know if that's a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so a, a, a very important issue. I mean, I think, I think what it comes down to is, and, and if, we, you know, if, we, if we think about just how badly we got it wrong with respect to, say, Brexit or the election of, you know, you know how, is it, how, is, how is this possible, right? Um, it, it, it's about the fact that there is such 
disconnect and, and simply no contact between small bubbles, right? I mean, I think, you know, so anthrop to think like an anthropologist is to be attentive to and listen to the voices of others, the concerns of others, to break bread with others, right? Uh, and to, uh, to, 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 you know, to travel both literally and, and figuratively, right? And recognize that the concerns of uh, certain communities might not be the concerns of, 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 our, of, our, of our own neighborhood, right? Um, so, I mean, in, in a way, you know, reading ethnography, reading anthropology is much like reading good fiction, which is to say, an effort to expand one's horizons about the, the, the variety of ways in which we can approach an issue, the imaginative horizons that we set ourselves, right? Um, so it, that's, and, and the, the more you know about the world, I think the better citizen of the world uh, you, you are, right? Um, so, you know, again, to go back to the, the campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan were, were brought up as well. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that always struck me as, I mean, just absolutely baffling in the logic of the way, you know, the United States in particular thought was, let's get rid of Saddam Hussein and um, utter the word democracy. And then, you know, I mean, it, it's literally, you know, it's, you've got to be kidding me, right? That, that you can simply remove some element of society, you know, chant a, ma a, a sacred word to your own tradition and assume that it's, go oh, yeah, okay, I know, yes, of course, that's all you had to say. Why didn't I think of it myself, right? I mean, it's, it's, it is, but it is amazing the extent to which we assume, right, that our own values, our own way of thinking is just total common sense. And I wanted to use a very flippant example in, in, in my talk with having to, to suffer a cricket. But this has very real uh, consequences, right? And so, uh, thinking like an anthropologist has to involve that that empathetic thinking outside the box, that culture shock, right? Culture shock is a good thing, right, for us. We should all seek it in one way or another because it allows us to appreciate the the relativity, which is not to say the the, the base, you know, the, the the foundationless aspects of of our own values, but the relativity of our values with respect to, to others, right? That's an excellent way to end. Um, culture shock is a good thing, and um, we should readily embrace it. Um, well, sadly, we have indeed run out of time. Uh, copies of Matthew's book will be on sale in the foyer, and I'm sure he'd be happy to sign them for you. But before you go out and grab those, please do join me in giving a big hand for Matthew and Gelke. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.